There we go. Thought I'd just follow up from there with a little reflection talk, if you will. Just to get ourselves into this verse of, of good news of great joy. Do not fear, I bring good news of great joy. What does that mean for us? You can hear these folks and the fear that they almost vocalizes uh, around like war, the climate crisis, a housing shortage, a rising uh, energy bills, um, sort of hints towards that like, inequality and polarization. And you could add to that levels of increasing anxiety and depression. And there's this feeling, like what feelings are vocalized, a bit of like confusion, they're depressed. When I watch the news, I feel sad, I feel angry. And, you, and then I guess we could all, they weren't sharing deeply personally, were we? we could almost just pause for a moment and reflect a bit more personally. And perhaps we fear things like financial security. Perhaps we fear about um, this, the strength of our relationships or the, perhaps the number or the quality of our relationships in our life or perhaps our health, our own health or people that are close to us, our health. It's so easy to fear, isn't it? And yet the angel says, do not fear to the shepherds. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And then we ask them, what do you think of, of, of this good news of the Christmas story then? Is there any hope in light of all of that? And on the whole, it was like, well, it's a nice time to bring people together. And um, perhaps it's a moment to sort of think of others and, and give to them. But I think um, I was just, it was a really fascinating time. It was actually quite exhausting, to be honest. <laughs> it was like a lot of no's, you can imagine, before you got some yeses to uh, those little interviews. We had fun. I was with Isaac. Um, but it's like, if the Christmas story is just that, oh, it's a good thing to gather around and get people together. Is it going to be enough to stop fear? Do not fear, to stop fear and to cause great joy in light of all the stuff that they mentioned, war, climate crisis, all the stuff, and all the stuff that we know in our lives that we may well fear. And I like the guy who was like, no, I don't think it is, <laughs> to be honest. I would like credited him for his honesty and, and, you know, he may well be right. But I think this quote has stuck with me as I've sort of prepared this little talk of, from C.S. Lewis. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I guess that chap thought the Christmas story was of no importance. Um, offered no hope or joy to the fears we face in our lives or society at large. But I guess I wonder if we've decided what we think. No importance, infinitely important. C.S. Lewis says it's not really, it can't be moderately. Before I just tell you a little story, I don't know how Christmas presents used to work when you were growing up. When I was growing up, we had a bit of like a strange ritual that evolved that in the, in the weeks running up to Christmas, we used to get cards from our relatives. They'd be addressed to us. I've got two younger brothers who come to Dan, Joe and Tom. And, and then you'd, you'd open the card and then mum's hand would just like magically appear underneath the card as it opened. And there'd sort of be a little check dropped out. And she knew what was coming. She'd just catch that and whistle it away. A little cat is sometimes cash, and it's just like whoop, that goes. And and then more and more, I think we just got used to it. And what happened was, mum, what we clocked was, mum had a special little notebook that she used to keep under the phone, and she'd like tot up all the money coming in. And then there's sort of this game we would play, me and my brothers, which is essentially like, ha, 
we'd ask for the presents. Basically, all my relatives would entrust mum to spend the money. So we'd ask for the presents. And we, you're going to ask for just the right amount of presents. If you ask for too much, you might have one that doesn't get bought. And then you end up with like a, a deficit from the total amount given. And mum could buy anything in that deficit. And so you're really opening yourself up to mum's choice. You don't want that. So you need to just sort of like slightly work out what's in the phone book, how much money is there, what about, and, and it all became a bit silly. And then as I grew up, my, as I guess you'd expect, when I got sort of 18, headed off to uni, there's this hiatus and the, the money stopped flowing from the relatives. <laughs> I was an adult. I didn't send them, them any money, so it's fair enough. But, um, and, then, and then I had a son, and, and then the money starts coming again. <laughs> it's nice. So then you are, but he's not old enough to open his own card. So currently, you get the money. And there's this scenario where my grandpa, uh, Ruben's great-grandpa, sent us a check for him for us to spend. You know, now it's, now it's my job to spend, <laughs> choose what to spend on. And what happened was... I'm not very organized, and I took this check, and I thought, oh, yes, yeah, so that's 30 quid or whatever it was. We went and bought something for that value. It went in the top drawer of my desk, and then I, and then I basically forgot about it and didn't cash the check. And then I had sort of like a phone call from grandpa's, you know, I haven't noticed the money go out of my bank, actually. And, but, you know, it's Christmas. That's like March, maybe. And, and he was like, and over time, he sort of rung and nudged me a few little times. I was like, I just hardly ever go into town, to be honest, to the bank. And when I do, it's for another reason. And I always forget to take the check. And then it just went on and on and on until he rung me in sort of July or something. And he was like, yeah, it's expired, hasn't it? Like you cut. And he was like, well, Ruben's the one who's lost out. And I wanted to leave you <laughs> with that lasting image as we just dive into this passage. The thing is, the check was worth real money, right? That my granddad was good for. He had it in his bank account. But I never took the necessary action to redeem this check, right? It stayed in my t- top, the top drawer of the desk. And I wonder if the good news of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, is a little bit like that. It's good news that would cause us great joy if we were to redeem it. But for whatever reason, we don't. It's all a stumbling block and we don't cash the, the check. Do you know what I mean? A few nodding heads. So it's like that thing of like, there's good news for great joy, but sometimes it's a bit elusive. Let's dive into this passage then. Um, it's good to understand the context. The Jewish people here are under Roman occupation. They're feeling the absence of God. Imagine, you remember the first reading in Isaiah is, is in a moment where they're, um, they're being warned about exile that is to come. It's all about to go wrong, but don't worry because when you're exiled, there will be this moment where it will all come good. A child will be born, a son will be given, the government will be on his shoulders. And it goes on to say like justice and righteousness and peace will be established at that point. So it's like it's looking forward. And then they've had this time where they go into exile, they come back, but it's not quite what they thought it was. And, and they're waiting and they're longing. And that verse and, and others like it are ringing in their heads. And then there's this news. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. The one that was told then is coming here now. 
And there's this mad language that's used, like good news is, is the language that was used to usher in um, a, new, a reign of a new king. Victory on a battlefield over there, new king, is going to shape our normal life over here. So the person runs back with the euangelion, which means the good news. Behold, good news, there's a new king. Everything's changed. Essentially, there's a new reality to, to live into. And uh, Luke is using that language to, to like, it's super subversive. And he's like, you may be under, you may be in the reign, I think verse one of, of Caesar Augustus, but actually there's a new reality breaking in. There's good news. And he uses the word savior and Lord, which would have been used of Caesar Augustus. He's saying, actually, this is the new inbreaking kingdom. So it's subversive and it's challenging to the status quo. And he's like, there's this Roman emperor who's oppressing you and the peace that Rome um, sort of says it has and it gives you isn't actually any peace at all. There's a real peace who's coming in through this new king. And we would probably agree with that as well. The peace and the justice in our status quo isn't, doesn't seem to be much peace or justice either, does it, at times? And it's fascinating, I thought, just to dwell on the different people's reactions in the Christmas story. You've got this heavenly host and they say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's so big. It's just like, uh, and then the shepherds, they say, the, they, they go home glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Then in Matthew, you've got the magi, like the three kings, the wise men. They, they bow down and they worship him when they find themselves in that stable. And then in, in Luke, just the next chapter, you've got this lady, Anna, and she goes home and she speaks about the child to all who are looking forward to the redemption of J- Jerusalem. She's like, this is it. This is the inbreaking uh, new reality, the good news. And then you've got this guy, Simeon, who's been holding out, longing, with that verse in Isaiah ringing in his mind for a new reality to break in. And then he sees this baby Jesus. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. I've held on, he's sort of saying. I'm an old, old man, but I've held on this long, and now I've seen it. You can dismiss me. Aren't they huge reactions, all the characters in this story? And I wanted us, I did this, I want us just to compare it to our natural reactions. When you um, come into contact with this story over Christmas, where do you bump into this story? Maybe it's like a nativity in a film. Maybe it's a nativity at a school, those of you with kids. Maybe it's a carol service like this. Maybe it's like one of those little models with the nativ- all the nativity characters. Do you have one of them? I used to have one of them growing up. There was one of them in the shopping center with like a strange sort of nodding Joseph. Can you remember them back in the day? And you'd walk past it. So all of those moments, you like bump into the Christmas story. What is our reaction? If their reaction was like running home, rejoicing, kneeling, bowing, worshipping. I feel like our reaction is often like, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's sweet. Isn't that nice? Like, what's the difference? Why is there that difference? It's not like the angel said, I bring you good news that will cause you to go, oh, that's sweet. (laughs) I bring you good news that you'd have great joy. What's the disconnect? I just, I was like, what what if, um, 
they're a bit dumb. You know, those folks, they just got a bit carried away and they thought Jesus was a big deal. But now in hindsight, you know, he wasn't what he was cracked up to be. But there's this thing called chronological snobbery where you can easily look back in the past and think that you're more clever than those people are in the past because they don't get a chance to defend themselves. And I don't think we want to play that game. Or maybe he was a big deal for them because of their context. They were oppressed by the Romans, but we're in a different sort of a context. So maybe it actually doesn't really um, elicit great joy in us, this good news. But no, I don't think it is. As we've heard from that video and as we know in our hearts, we have a deep longing in our world and in our lives to see justice and peace come about. We have the same longing that they did. And we need a new reality. We know that the best leaders in our world can't solve the problems we face. If we're honest, we often can't solve the problems in our own lives either. Relationship breakdown or anxiety or depression or addiction or things we like bump into again and again. We need something outside of ourselves, don't we, as they did. Perhaps we're missing something. Perhaps there's a reason that we struggle to sort of redeem the check. It stays as a nice idea in the, in the top drawer. My conviction is that as, the, as this represented good news for the Jews in first century Palestine, it represents good news for us um, in postmodern 21st century England. And I think the, the thing that has struck me as I've read this story over and over again is that the, the, um, the life that Jesus embraced is so unfamiliar to us now and it was so unfamiliar to, to them then. And there's something about like, it's not just the news, but the way the news is communicated that is fascinating. You need to know in terms of context that, that, that Luke's social world was defined by power and privilege. But these words that are used, as we've said, right? Caesar, Lord, good news. They're like, they're like putting him as a competitor to Caesar. But what happens? His whole story is characterized by poverty. A family with nowhere to go, a baby born in precarious circumstances, wrapped in strips of cloth, placed in a feeding trough. That's not the birth of a king, is it? That's not the start of a king's life. Even just the way the story plays out, it mentions this emperor and then the governor, but it's not announced to them. The angels don't go to them. The angels go to shepherds who are peasants on a hill who spend most of their time out of town not talking to anyone. And the angels go and choose to share the news with them. The whole thing feels upside down. And, and as Mary's song goes, it's like he's brought down rulers from their throne. He's lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things. He's sent the rich away empty. It's upside down. The whole thing is upside down. The thing that I just reflect on, if you wanted to start a new kingdom, you'd be born into a family where you had a chance of like a good education, wouldn't you? If you were God and you're like, I'm going to come as a human, I'm going to make sure I manage to get to a family with education, some resource and some influence so I can like spread this news that I want to spread. Perhaps like I was thinking the Obamas, you know, or, like, or maybe the Gates, the Gates family, good money, good reputation. Maybe the Kardashians, you know, like get yourself on all over Instagram and just show it off. But God, when God wraps himself in human flesh and becomes one of us, pitches his tent among us, as one writer says, 
he chooses to be born to a couple no one's heard of, to a people group who had little influence but were under oppression, in an obscure part of the country no one had heard of. He chooses for his birth to be announced to shepherds um, and, and peasants and, 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 and not to the people who had power and to influence. Not only is it a challenge to the status quo, but it's also saying this new reality is entirely different. This new reality is one in which power and privilege and status and influence is not accrued, but is given away. It's a new reality in which image and reputation is not sort of curated so that we can protect ourselves, but actually it's just abandoned for a new identity that we find in our Father in heaven who loves us. It's a reality in which great joy is found not through serving ourselves, but through serving others around us in obedience to our Heavenly Father. It's, it's so upside down, and Jesus demonstrates this in, in the way that he is born, and then, and, and then the way that he lives his life. Paul writes about him, he gave up his privileges, he humbles himself in obedience to death, in obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on a cross. Humility and obedience. And he carries on like this. He says, I only do what I see my father doing. He takes the form of a human. He shows us how to be human, which is just wholly submitted and surrendered to God, our father, walking in close step with him, following him. He doesn't accrue power and influence. He basically recruits this ragtag, unlikely bunch of disciples, of followers that no one's really heard of, probably on the bottom rung of society. And he says, come and follow me. Come and live like I'm living, humbly and obedient to my father in heaven. He famously says to them, if you cling to your life, you'll lose it. If you let your life go, you'll save it. And I felt this challenge. The, the problems that, we, that we've heard about and that we speak about, they create fear in us, as we've said. And so often in response to fear, we sort of try and build a life of comfort and security for ourselves, to find an identity and status, to establish and protect a reputation. But Jesus says as we try and cling to our lives in that way, we lose them. We're created to be dependent on God. And in that way, when we like grab, we cling to our life and we try and create security and comfort and identity ourselves, we actually just shut ourselves off. We're created for relationship. And I think that's some of why we end up sort of leaving the check in the top drawer and not redeeming it. We don't experience this great news, that, um, the great joy that is on offer in response to this news. And that's why I think we end up saying, like, oh, that's nice. But actually, I've just, got to keep, I've just got to keep making it myself. And all the way to his death. At his death, Jesus says these amazing words when he's, he's so afraid. The night before his death, he's sweating blood. He says, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, not what I want but your will be done. The ultimate act of obedience and humility. And Hebrews says, for the sake of the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross. On the other side of obedience and suffering, there was, there was joy. And I believe that same invitation is available to us today. If we make it our chief goal 
to follow Jesus. He said, come follow me, to live the life he lives of humility and obedience. It isn't guaranteed to like avoid suffering. I think it's part of just being human. There's suffering and there's pain, but there's great joy when we, we don't try and cling to our life, but we lose it and we give it up and we say, Lord, the most exciting thing I want to do is, is, to, is to follow you. I'll just land with this. These two characters in this story, Zechariah and Mary, they represent the two ways to respond to this, I think. Zechariah, this is in the chapter before. You can go back and read it in Luke 1. Zechariah is in the temple. He's sort of in charge at the altar. He's got the incense and he's doing his thing. He's perhaps enjoying the traditions a bit like we do at Christmas. And he's, like, he's quite happy doing that. And, and um, then this angel shows up and he says, your wife, Zechariah, is barren. Hasn't been, you haven't been able to have a child, but you've been praying and God's heard your prayer. You are going to have a baby. You're going to call him John. He becomes John the Baptist. He's going to get everyone ready for Jesus. So here's good news. How does Zachariah react? And think of this. How would you react? He says, how can I be sure of this? How can I be sure of this? Essentially, like, prove it. Prove it, God. It's almost like, hold on, this sort of sounds like fake news to me. Can you convince me? Can you prove it? There's this sense in which it's like his intellect and his own experience with his filter for what was true and possible. He kind of, he missed it. Um, and he ends up actually losing his voice. It's an interesting story. And then it all turns around. Go and check it out. Um, and then you've got, um, you've got Mary. Mary's this, Mary's this unsuspecting and unlikely character. But again, the angel comes to her. Do not be afraid, the angel says. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. Again, good news. How does Mary react? How is it different to Zachariah? It's kind of a similar tone, but it's more like amazed. She says, how will this be? How will this be? And an exclamation, explanation comes. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. She knew that this news wasn't news to sort of be weighed up and analyzed and held at arm's length. But this news was something, she was sort of like standing on the precipice of a new inbreaking reality. What was the appropriate response that Mary models? Humility and obedience. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And as a result, God comes close to us. He reveals and demonstrates his great love for us. He lifts up the lowly, starting with her. He becomes like, he becomes one of us so we could become like him. And so I'm left wondering, perhaps this is how we experience great joy in light of the Christmas story. Not to hold up the news at arm's length and weigh it up like Zachariah, to sort of intellectually dissect it, send God our biggest questions and doubts on the back of a postcard and ask him to prove the bits that we find hard to believe. But also not to try and cling to like what is ultimately an illusion of comfort and security out of fear. But instead to live in the story, to say, to hear Jesus' invitation, come and follow me, live like this. And live like, and, and follow Mary's example and, and live in humble obedience to our Father in heaven. Dependence on him, what we were made for.
She said, I am the Lord's servant. And Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Lucy, do you want to come and join? I don't know if you've got mates. Have you got mates coming with you? <laughs> we thought we'd just listen to, um, it's actually a song that Lucy wrote, which is really cool. Um, called How Can It Be? The light overcomes the darkness. The, the, there's power clothed in humility. Such fitting words for this. Um, reading and talk in his love that comes to us there's room for the broken there's always hope there's comfort and healing but he, and he holds all of us and I'd encourage you a bit like Mary did she it says that she treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart let the let those you know my f- fluffy words just sink into your heart for a moment like what does God want to say to you Treasure them up, ponder them as you listen to these, um, the beautiful words of, of Lucy's song.